0: You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm R. Purcell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, has pretty much finished its film festival run, although we are playing Phoenix in April, which is really exciting. But yeah, it's going to be out in the masses sometime in 2022.
0: I'm Liz Manichel, my writer, director, producer, who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, currently on Showtime. I'm in development on about five more films. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker Chris Yogi on the show to talk about his experience going through the Sundance Labs, making his first feature August at Akiko's, and how that led him to making a second feature, I Was a Simple Man, that premiered at Sundance in 2021. After that we discuss an article by Ed Meza from Variety about how a new NFT platform is hoping to boost indie filmmakers. And then we read another iTunes review. The first Arik, how's life? What's going on for you?
1: Oh, life is good. I just got back from vacation. It's been hard to go? return to Did real life. Did you go
0: somewhere? Did, where were you?
1: Where'd I was you in a place called Sea Ranch up north. Do you know where that is? Have no. you been familiar? Oh. It's near a town called Gul- Gulala. And it's a little town that's basically like, I don't know if you call it like an artist seaside community or like what you'd call it. But they basically have made it so that every building in that area has to follow a certain style or structure. Mm. So they're all wood. They're all angled a certain way. And like you drive through and it's like it's got this really specific artistic look to it.
0: Is it near Pismo Beach?
1: No, other direction. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Oh, right. It's
0: north for me, not for you. Okay. Yes. Yeah.
1: No, north north, from, from San Francisco, not north okay. from L.A. Yeah. But no, But I, I go there every year with my, with my friends, and it was the first time I took B.B. on a trip. It was first trip ever, and she got a lot of firsts. She got to see the ocean for the first time. She got to be in a pool for the first time. And it was really fun just to uh, you know have uh, four or five whole days off with my family and just to uh, hang out with my daughter all day. And now that I can't hang out with her all day, it's like I really miss hanging out with her all day. Bummer. And yeah, I've been reading scripts. I just finished another script. I'm starting to get burnt out on reading scripts. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I don't know. I think I just I didn't like the last one that I read very much. It's not. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible. It was just like. Like I read one and I had to stop because it was not good enough. And then I read another one and then that one was like not as good as the other two I had just read. And so now I'm like, I need a good script to read. Oh, yeah. So I don't know. I have like one other, but I also kind of want to read st- something that I could actually potentially make. And the other one I have on my list is like, you know, a science fiction, like, you know, five to 10 million, if not more movie, you know? And it's just like, I don't know. I kind of want to read something. That you could make for $500,000. But, you know, it's really hard to find those scripts. Hard to find. So, anyways, but yeah, how are you doing? How are things with you?
0: Things are good. We've been watching the Oscar movies. My husband is like very well, we're both into the Oscars, but he's a completionist. So, at the very least, we have to watch every single Best Picture nominee. So, we're five in right now.
1: What's your favorite?
0: well i only want to watch the happy ones so we've only watched the happy ones so far and now we're going into the dark ones and i'm not
1: ready what are the what are the happy ones i want to know what the happy ones are okay so
0: we've watched king richard we've watched oh shit what's oh my god sean's like outside the door (laughs) yelling at me i have i have a list let me look at this list It's like really fun to check it off as we watch the movies so i loved king richard i thought that was really wonderful actually Coda we watched Coda. Sean liked that. I mean we both liked it but Sean liked it a little bit more than me. We watched Licorice Pizza. We watched Don't Look Up and we watched Do we only watch 4? I thought we watched 5. Oh, Dune. We've seen Dune.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> and then- I like that Don't Look Up is like one of the happier ones <laughs> with the ending that Don't Look Up has. Uh no spoilers. <laughs> Right.
0: Well, the, well, the five that we have left, and I don't know actually what the tone of Belfast, but is Belfast or I have My Car, Nightmare Alley, Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. So they're the more like more heft, uh. darker
1: material. Yeah. So we'll see. Nightmare Alley, I would say, is in the same category as the first five.
0: Oh, that's great. Okay, because that's our next one is Nightmare Alley.
1: Oh, awesome. My yeah. friend
0: David Ruckman told me he's seen it four times, and and he's hard four to times. please. He's very hard to please.
1: Wow. So Amazing. it makes me
0: think like I gotta watch it. Yeah. So we're watching those movies, and then I had this meeting with Amy Taylor this morning where I was like, Amy, I actually have control. Or we have control over making this horror film. We can actually make this horror film. Why am I not prioritizing it? Why am I avoiding doing an outline? Why am I, you know, doing everything else instead of writing the script with you? And she's like, okay, we're going to create deadlines for ourselves and really going to focus on this project. So I think some like glittering gemstones were... I don't know what are they distracting me for a few months possibly Mm, mm, mm. and now I'm going back to the world of um, manifesting films and really trying to get something off the ground that I have control over not this like weird development game that I keep referring to with these films that I'm attached to though two of those films that I'm attached to have really loving hardworking people and I'm not going to leave them stranded so I just want to acknowledge that
1: yeah, but you can also but you, you don't need to make them your top priority necessarily. Like you can make something that you right. can actually control your top priority. I think so. Which I think, I think so. is better.
0: Yeah, so that's what's going on. But what also do I should I transition? I feel like there's we usually spin off <laughs> into something at this point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I was I was just gonna think one thing I didn't talk about, but I don't know. Let's yeah, say not say it. Back. Say it. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, yeah, I've, I've in addition to reading scripts, I've also been like collaborating with writers on ideas. So, there's two different writers I, I'm working with on like this little concepts where it's just like one of them, I, I pitched three ideas and then he took one and he's like, okay, this I like this. And he wrote me a, a treatment based off my idea that was very different. And now he's like working on that and like trying to beef out the treatment and make it into like a full outline, you know? So that's really exciting because it feels like I'm not writing anything, but like I feel like I am because I'm like Wait, a part of this creative process You went
0: from treatment to outline.
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you'd call it because it's because it because to me, a treatment isn't a full outline. It's just like kind of a rough. Well, well here, maybe you tell me what it is, because like what he wrote <laughs> me was like a little rough, like overview of what. The the script could be, which I thought of as a treatment. Maybe that's not what a treatment is. No, maybe you
0: just say it's like a a rough treatment. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I just, it's funny because Amy and I are going from outline to treatment.
1: Oh, funny. And the
0: treatment for us is like a three to 10 page document where you essentially write in prose what happens in the movie. That's Ah. how we interpret that word
1: treatment. But I was thinking of it backwards, like the treatment is just like the rough little and like (laughs) the outline would be like the more detailed, like almost like a beat sheet, you know, like here's what happens in the movie. But I I wonder, you probably use them interchangeably for either.
0: I think it's fine. It's like the word one sheet or the phrase one sheet. It's like everyone has a different interpretation of what a one sheet is anyway. I
1: hate one sheets. So stupid. I was told to make one. Didn't use it for anything. Fuck one sheets.
0: I always ask my clients to create a one sheet for me because I really do use them in distribution. But for do everything. You really? Yeah, I really. Because it's from here. This is my, I guess, my sneaky, m- sneaky trick. <laughs> Since I don't believe distributors watch the movie, I give them a cheat sheet, which I call a one sheet. And I basically say, this is what the movie's about. Here's the running time. Here's the specs. But also here are the audiences you could target. Here are the. Here's data on comp films, and it's all in one piece of paper, so no one can be like, "I'm too lazy to read a piece of paper." It's one piece of paper, so I do yeah. that for distribution.
1: I like that. That's awesome. But yes,
0: you're collaborating with writers.
1: Yeah, so that's been, that's been fun, and I, you know, another another one who you know, I may all out actually is Eric Tom's, our producer. Yeah, he have been spitballing an idea back and forth. You know, no, he hasn't gotten anything. Like super duper detailed, but what he sent me last, I was like really excited by. So, I can't wait to see what he comes up with. So, lots of fun. Lots of fun stuff. Also need to be writing too. I I, I wrote like last week, I think I wrote maybe five pages of my script and it felt like a real win. And then like this week, nothing. So, I got to get my five pages. You can
0: ride high for a few weeks off
1: of five pages. Oh, uh, five pages? Really? You give me five you pages? <laughs>
0: yeah. I really... Think- I mean, again, we've been doing this outline for like six months, so I think five pages sounds really meaningful.
1: It's funny, I have the outline for the thing that I, I wrote over, I don't know, months and months and months and I finished it on my flight to Italy for the, the alternate screening there and then I, I wrote like 10 pages on that same flight and then from there, it's now it's like 18 pages or something. Months and months later. So okay. it feels like it's coming together and I have the outline to to lean on. So it's like to me there's no excuse why this movie shouldn't be written in, in a month. But I don't know. That's easier said than done.
0: Do you know what there's also no excuse for? What's that? Listening to the show and not supporting the Patreon. And the reason I say that is because it's real cheap. The bar is low, guys. If you give like 199 you have access to the entire back catalog of every single episode we've ever made. But also it's really meaningful to us. That you'd be willing to support making the show with us and putting some
1: skin in the game. And you get to hear amazing things like our weekly meetings where we talk about the show, which we've started to post to our Patreon page. So it's like a little insider look into, you know, how we plan for our show every week and like how we talk about the podcast. And I feel like sometimes (laughs) with Eric, they're like mini podcast episodes. So that's why we like (laughs) decided to record them. It's, It's like we're like talking about and then we just go off on these tangents and it's like, oh. Why aren't we recording this? So we just start recording them. So you can check those out. There's also like videos from Liz, videos from me on there. There'll be more. So, you know, you don't just, you're not just supporting us. You get a little extra, a little extra behind the scenes stuff for you too. So if, check that out if you'd like.
0: We do want to let everyone know about someone else who's supporting the show. And that's jambox.io. And if you listen to the show, you know that they're a new royalty-free music and SFX company. And they emphasize high quality cinematic cues. They're pretty cool. All Rick's use them. They offer customized plans to fit your needs. They focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis. So when you're working with a queue, it's your queue. It's not popping up on other platforms. So if you're interested in exploring Jambox.io, you can use the promo code MMIH in all caps when signing up to get a 20% discount on your subscription. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Chris Yogi.
1: Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Give us the elevator pitch for I Was a Simple Man.
2: Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I Was a Simple Man is a ghost story that's set in the North Shore of Hawaii, which is my home. And it tells the story of an old man who's on his deathbed and he's visited by the ghosts of his past. So it's a very surreal It's not your traditional ghost story it's very surreal based on memory based on history and based on a lot of personal stories from my family and from my youth growing up there
0: how many days did you shoot
2: we shot for 25 days we did a really cool thing where we shot like with a big crew for like four weeks and then the last week we like went small and we did like a really like on the like mobile crew for the last week and what was your rough budget if you can say we were under a million
0: how did you come up with the idea
2: Oh, wow. This idea came to me over 10 years ago. It was was inspired by a period in my life when I experienced a lot of death in the family. And the film is about grieving. It's about being in the room with someone who's passing away. A family comes out to the North Shore to sort of be with the main character as he's on his deathbed and kind of going into the afterlife. And that was really just based on my experience. Um, I went through a period in my life where I lost A few people in my life, my father to cancer, and then a grandfather to suicide, and then another grandfather to cancer. And just like that boom, boom, boom was like really just a really disorienting period in my life. Like, I don't think I had the tools at the time to really deal with what was going on. I just remember the feeling though of being in the room with someone who's passing away that sort of like really sort of terrifying and yet in retrospect, very beautiful feeling that someone's life is sort of closing in on the room around us. Like it's almost like they're seeing things that aren't there. They're talking to people that aren't there. They're going through their own journey. We don't really, we're not really accessing that. And so I just really wanted to make a film that captured what it felt like to be in the room when someone who's passing away. And that was 10 years ago. And then it took me a really long time to get the film made. So it's been a long journey since that initial kernel of an idea.
1: And then compared to all of the projects you've made, how difficult was it to make this one?
2: The most difficult just in terms of getting it made for sure. Just because it was, it's an art film. It's a film shot in Hawaii. There isn't the infrastructure to make a lot of indies in Hawaii, and it's a full Asian American Pacific Islander cast. Like it's just on every level. It's about, and it's also about an old man who's dying. Like it's not the sexiest sort of pitch, and so it's just, it was, it was tough, tough, tough movie to make. But we got it made, and really, I'm just proud that we got it made. You know, that really is the accomplishment in my mind.
0: Now, the micro-budget world is a little bit uh, controversial, and I know this, ne- this film is not necessarily micro-budget, but your other feature, August Kikos, is, if I'm allowed to say it is, am I allowed? Yeah. Seeking yeah. Appro- approval? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you did mention that this film was under a million. I guess there's a question out here, I don't know if it, it's formed, but what is your philosophy with regard to budget? I mean, are you afraid of a micro-budget? Are you afraid of the associations? Is it all about just getting the project off the ground? What a lot of different people feel like micro budgets devalue the artist in some way, and it sounds like you have potentially a different perspective.
2: Yeah, I'm curious. Like, what? What is like? What is the? What is the question about devaluing think- the artist? Like, I I don't think that's ever that's been something that I I that's crossed my mind. Well, because oh well, it's
1: something that we talk about a lot. You know, yeah. I think in general, yeah.
0: I think where I'm coming from and is the idea that. First of all, a lot of people don't want to talk about their budgets. But second of all, the idea that a director needs to prove that they can handle budgets of certain sizes in order Mm -hmm. to, quote, unquote, make it in this industry. Mm -hmm. And then also the idea of how do you know that you have the budget for that idea? Mm -hmm. Like, are Mm -hmm. you being restrictive? And is that does does that have some sort of fallout on the execution of the idea? Mm -hmm. I know these are really vague ideas and vague (laughs) concepts that I'm throwing at you for our first question. But I guess I admire micro-budget creators so much that I just am curious where you come with regard to budget.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, with both our films, with August Adekiko's the first film and with this film, I think a lot of it came from responsibility. Like we definitely knew that in both cases, we were making our films and we were making films for a very specific audience, a niche audience. So we we knew that this wasn't a film that was going to be a blockbuster, for example and we knew that going in and so to then sort of craft the budget of the film so that it's responsible to that end to the amount of money that we thought the film would do in the marketplace for example so really we use that as a guide both films are very art house and very pretty strident about it and so we knew that it wouldn't necessarily be a film that that investors would be flocking to pour a bunch of money into with the first film being very very small was actually kind of part of the the fun of it like we wanted to make a film that was very mobile you know our crew was i think five people it was a situation where like i was running sound on some like i was doing second camera our dp then would do sound sometimes sarah the producer would like jump on a camera or like do you know we do whatever like hold a bounce board our lead actor at some point was like holding a bounce board stuff like that like we were just like we're in this mode like we just really wanted to make A film, and by keeping it small, we were then able to have a lot of time. And with that film, that's really what came into play, like in making the film, I think, as beautiful as it is, because we were able to then immerse ourselves in the culture. That film is set on the Big Island of Hawaii. It's about a community, and we were able to be in the community and just exist and do a lot of research, meet a lot of people, sort of embed ourselves and learn and also give back. We're volunteering, we were meeting with people hearing their stories, even though it had nothing to do with the the film per se. And then that just, you know, but it all kind of makes its way into the film little by little. We valued the freedom and the time and the mobility with that first one. And that's why we kept the budget very small. And I, I And to be honest, it was one of the most liberating sort of filmmaking experiences I've ever had to have that sort of freedom to just, you know, not be beholden to making days. For example, I'm also an editor, so I was editing the film at night and I would show the crew in the morning, I'd be like, this is what we did yesterday. This is what I think is working. This is what I think is not working. And just having that sort of process in which we were all sort of making the film together, like a band, was one that I really valued and that I think really reinvigorated my love of filmmaking in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the way in which we made that film. I don't know if we'll be able to return to that. I hope we are in some way, or I hope I can incorporate some of those values into the work moving forward. We'll see.
1: So just to, to follow up, like, can you say what the budget was on your first feature? Are you comfortable talking about that?
2: I don't know if I can. I think it was around 150 okay. That's what I remember you telling small. me. Yeah. 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 It wasn't, it was a small budget and that includes posts, that includes finishing.
0: Wait, were that you saying editing? you didn't know if you could because you couldn't remember or because you were worried about fallout from saying that? No, no, no.
2: I, I just, I just. I don't know if I could remember. <laughs> but I know it's around there, but I don't know the exact
1: number. So just to double down on, on Liz's question, because this is something that I think is really interesting to me and, and something yeah. that my filmmaker friends have talked about a lot is like, you know, like, like, our oh, crew, you are kidding yourself? Like, you're going to make a $200,000 movie or around there. Like, why would you bother doing that? You know, because no one's going to see it. Like, like, when's the what's the last $200,000 movie that you ever saw? You know, that's like this argument that people have brought to me in the past and continue to bring to me. You know, and then we have guests on the show who make movies for like way, way less than that, like $50,000, $40,000, $70,000. So like the question comes to the point, it's like, is that a legitimate way to make a movie? Like, or do you feel like, like, no, like you need, like in order to actually get noticed to actually have impact, like you need to make it on a bigger budget or does, you know, that's the question really.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I obviously it doesn't matter. Like a movie is a movie, like. I have movies that are shot, like one shot on an iPhone, and I consider it a movie, you know, I put it up online and people watch it. And I I consider that a movie, it's made for nothing, except, you know, 15 minutes of my time. And so yeah, it's definitely a movie. You know, I, I don't know the answer to the question of how it's perceived on the other side. I don't know. I do know that the perception around the second film, which is a bigger film, was different than the first film. And I do think that it in many ways is perceived as A quote unquote, more real movie, because it was made with the production processes that are more in line with a sort of Hollywood industrial production process. And it has, I think, more of a look, where it has name, name, name actors, it has people, you know, it has big crews or whatever, and like department heads, in a way that the first film didn't. And I do get the feeling that people treat it a little differently, for sure. But To me, they're they're both movies, and I love them both. They're just different, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, and I know that you're being a little bit modest, or maybe you think that we're, maybe you presume we're going to get to this point. But that feature Auguste Kiko's was a was a massive success. I mean, the premiere at Rotterdam, the coverage in the New Yorker. I mean, like you, the film was on a lot of. I remember because we're friends on Facebook, so I got to see some of it. But I mean, it was on top 10 lists of the year when it came out. And I guess I'd love to hear about that process of making what this, having this liberating experience, making this smaller film and then seeing it balloon up in front of you.
2: Yeah, it was wild, you know, because again, when we were going into it, really the, the inspiration or the, the motivation behind making the movie is because we, had, we were having such a hard time getting I Was a Simple Man made. We at that point had gone through the Sundance Labs. We were taking all these meetings, just rejections all over the place. And it was just demoralizing. And I just, we just, like, it was, we were pounding our head against the wall trying to get this movie made. And we were like, you know what? Like, let's just, let's just do something else that's, you know, a palate cleanser of sort, but let's do something that's fun. Like, let's do something that is, like, in a lot of ways, like low, low stakes is what we felt. And I think that was a smart thing to do because part of me felt like like I almost like went into the film being like, I know this is going to be cool. Like, I think this what we're putting together is cool. Whatever we make is going to be very cool. But, you know, if it isn't, then okay. Like, that's that's okay. Like, we at least we had fun making it and at least we tried. So, it was very much putting very low pressure on ourselves and just really emphasizing the value of being creative. Having freedom, being having fun with your friends, and then all that other stuff is just—I I, like you know—we we couldn't have predicted that it would have done as well as it has, and that and all of those things are so random and all based on like it's almost like I can draw a line where like everything that happened to that film was based in some sort of like random encounter or some sort of like somebody just helping out when we needed help, you know, like so all of that stuff is really out of our control, so we just we just rode with it and obviously i'm very glad that the film has its fans you know that's really cool that we made this cool thing and i love it but to see other people love it as much as i do is beautiful i mean i'm so grateful so
1: after all the success with august at Akiko's, what happened what was the reaction that led you to making i was a simple man like what was was it just like oh here's all the money let's go or like was there other steps to it to like you know get the movie made
2: yeah yeah there i mean there's still a bunch of steps you know, uh, one thing that changed in that period, so we shot August at Aikikos 2017, and then we premiered it 2018. And then we shot I Was a Simple Man 2019. So in those two years, just the, the industry changed, to be honest. Like pre-August at Aikikos, when we went through the Sundance Labs, and we were set up on all these meetings, and we we're pitching our film, you know, just straight up, people would be like, we're not like we, there's no market for this Asian American project. And it just, there's just a like, sorry, like there's not a market for this. And our producer, Sarah, would like present all of this like research that she did about like the buying power of Asian Americans and like all of this stuff, that, all this research that we did. And we we're like, no, we think there's a market here. Like, and you, you know, like not that our film is going to be like a blockbuster or anything, but we do think that you shouldn't ignore this segment of film goers. And of course, because there hadn't been a, a previous success, I think it was just tough for them to imagine that. And then after August at Akiko's, at that point, Crazy Rich Asians had already come out. I think the farewell was maybe a year or two after that. It was funny, it was almost like the same people that we were pitching to a couple years earlier were now like, What what's up with your what's up with your FOI <laughs> project? Like we're trying to diversify our slate. Like, you know, we're looking to add some Asian American content. And it was, you know, really cynical and kind of gross, but it was it 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 really was that that weird. But you know, the real Game changer was that we were invited to the Sundance Catalyst program. And we went to Sundance Catalyst and we met with a couple of investors, both Asian American, who came into our meetings basically almost like, we're here for this Asian American project. Like, you are the project that we want to invest in because you're the only Asian American project at this, in this portfolio. We just want to meet you and make sure you're not crazy. But we're just, we, we've been waiting for a project like this, Catalyst to present a project like this to us. And they came on board, these Asian American investors, and they, through Catalyst, we got half our budget, basically, you know, like a third or half or something like that, like 40%. So that got us really started. And that was a big, big, big help. That's
0: amazing. And then, you know, Constance Wu is in the film. I mean, like, she's such a huge deal. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, actually, I want to go back really briefly. Did so you have representation or sales agent for Augusta Kiko's? And then tell us about how Suits work with you at any point <laughs> do you do you work with suits do you ever work with suits how did you get to constance Wu? was it suits
2: no it wasn't <laughs> it's really funny like no we like we we approached our distributor ourselves like we just cold emailed them I, you know our distributor on august at Akiko's was factory 25 and i would just like see matt at festivals and i'd be like hey i'm chris i'm the guy who made that august at Akiko's. like you should check it out. Like, just like, you know, just like saying, Hey, and just making sure he can put a face to the film. And then after a while he watched it It took him a long time to watch it. Cause I'm, you know, like, no, like we didn't have necessarily like anybody, like anybody selling it or anybody like really, or any PR or anything like that. When he watched it, he was like, I, like, I love it. Like I'll, yeah, I'll distribute this. And so we were doing all of that work ourselves. Sarah, our producer also does a lot of work in the distribution space. She at that time founded like a small distribution collective. So she, she was very knowledgeable as well. And so when we were negotiating with Matt, we like retained certain, te- we retained Hawaii for ourselves because we know that market and we could sell it. We could like book the theaters ourselves. We could promote it ourselves, that kind of thing. So it was very DIY that film. We did a lot of it ourselves, finding the right partners. To get to Constance was actually, uh, again, like a Sundance thing. I went through the Sundance Director Lab and I cast her in my scenes. And so you, you know, in that lab you you cast a bunch of actors and you have a DP and you have a whole crew and you shoot scenes and like, you know, nobody's supposed to see them. They're all really just a, an experiment, like a like a lab, like a like a a time to really just try things. And I loved working with her. Like I just uh, we got along really well. We became friends after that. And yeah, I still remember the first scene we shot with her it was you know really just a silent scene you know at that point i think she'd been on fresh off the boat for maybe like half a year was like in the middle of the first season so she was no she was becoming known like this rising star as a comedian but not really known for dramatic work but then she sent me some work that i really liked that was in the that was dramatic and i loved it i was like yeah come let's do let's try this drama thing and i still remember her first scene like it was a wordless scene and she had like Yeah, there was like a stunned silence after we called Cut because it was so powerful. Just her presence and her look. Like uh, our script supervisor was crying, I remember, (laughs) like just from that performance, that first take. And I just, for me, it was like suddenly that character that she inhabited started to make sense to me in a way that it didn't before she stepped into that role. And that's really what the lab is for, is that allows you to then find, find things, understand your script better by shooting it. So then, you know, after that process, like I felt like that, character was just as much hers as it was mine and so i asked her i think i think the next year i was like i was like do you, like do you want to be a part of this film if we make it and she's like yes i would love to be a part of this film let just let me know and then of course fresh off the boat goes on for a bunch of years we're trying to make this film having a hard time crazy rich asians comes out she becomes a much bigger star than she was on fresh off the boat and we were like you know we don't, we have no idea if she's still going to do our film but we just kept her updated we're just like hey like we're we're still pushing forward we're hoping to shoot this maybe next year blah 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 and she'd always, always be like cool send me the new draft she would read the new draft and she would like tell me yeah i like it and then around 2019 i you know i just thought like i think we can i think we're, we're going to be able to make this film this year can you do it and she was basically like yes like just like i i have a break like this is my break so if you can just slot me in I will come to Hawaii and I will do it for, she was only there for two weeks. So she's there for three weeks. She came early to do some research and hang out and stuff, but like I will come, I will shoot the film and then I have to go do my other engagement. But we're like, great. So then we just like, that was our goal. Just like, we have to get it together by this, these weeks in the summer. And then everything else kind of just like, we just schedule everything else around her schedule. You know what I mean? And so the, the schedule is wild because she's in like, she's in so much of the film from beginning to end. And so, like, it was just production design had to go had to go forward and then backward and then build things and then take it down. And so, it was totally, totally nuts. But because we were able to do that, because we were able to do the schedule in a way that allowed her to come, she came and did our film and had a wonderful time, I think. I think she really loved doing it. I, I had a wonderful time.
1: That's an amazing story. But let's go back to the director's lab. So, you said you met her there, but how do you cast when you're at the director's lab? Do you Like, did you just, did you know her from fresh off the boat and like approach her agents or like, how, how does that work when you're in the lab?
2: So they assign you a, a casting director and the casting director, I think works with maybe all of, maybe she's casting all of the projects. I'm not totally sure, but her name was Edie Pelasco and she just reached out to all of the managers and the agents and sent me a bunch of videos, you know, set up meetings for me to meet these actors and we cast that way, you know, and you know, when we, when I had to make, I was a simple man. We used Edie as our casting director, oh, so nice. that relationship we we continued throughout as well. So I mean, so much of the film is you know I'm so grateful. Like so much of the film is like, it doesn't exist without the Sundance Institute. I'm, I'm you know I'm convinced.
0: Going to I want to ask about Sundance, but I'm going to ask about it later <laughs> because I want to ask about the production schedule because. You talked a little bit about the full crew and then moving into the more mobile, smaller skeleton crew. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to do that?
2: Yeah, a few reasons. One is because I had such a great experience working in that mobile way on August at Akiko's and I was trying to retain some of that spirit. And we also knew that there was just a lot of stuff that we had to shoot that was not necessarily B-roll, but it was maybe just one actor in a space and it would be we wouldn't need the crew. We'd know we would be shooting natural light a lot. Of, like a, like a lot of that week, we shot the dog running around, like just the dog running through the city or whatever. And like we knew, like all we needed was the dog and the the wrangler and us. And and it's just and like so we just were like okay. So a lot of the stuff that we know we don't need the full crew for, we'll just do it in that week. And I think it just allowed us then to also have fun that week. Like it was a very leisurely week. Like we shot a bunch of stuff. We, you know, had took long lunches, <laughs> like shot the sky. We would shoot clouds, we were shooting mountains, like that kind of stuff. It was just real fun, you know. We're hiking through the jungle, shooting a bunch of just jungle stuff. Like <laughs> it just felt like um that documentary mode, even though we were shooting stuff with performers, like that documentary mode just felt like a nice sort of way to end end the film. And I hope that I hope that I can figure out a way to continue to incorporate that kind of space within the production schedule because you know like the traditional sort of production process is so like make your day make your day make your day to the point where like sometimes i can get a little lost in the the momentum of it like just you know okay we got that now let's move on to this we got that now let's move on to this and i i tend to almost like lose the sense of excitement around discovery in those in shooting those those scenes in that way and so even i would say by week two three i was starting to introduce improvisation into the shooting just because i wanted to like inject a little bit of energy for myself mostly i think into the films that i was looking like i was like you know we're playing we we're we're still retaining a sense of play and a sense of discovery even within this sort of big sort of machine that was running around us
1: so uh, you finished the movie you know you edited it you've been to the sundance labs the writing and the directing lab so do you just know you're going to get into Sundance or like, how does it work? Like when you're done, like, do you have a special person you email the movie to and they watch it? Or do you submit like everybody else? Like, just talk to us through the process.
2: We absolutely did not know we were going to get it. We, we didn't expect to, to be frank. Because of our relationship with the Institute side, you know, like Sundance Institute, Sundance Film Festival, or, you know, they say that they're very separate. I know they hang out and talk to one another, but our relationship was mainly with the Institute side. I didn't really know anyone on the festival side. My films had not screened at the film festival previous to that. And so we relied on the feature film program to make an introduction to the programmers at the film festival. And then, and then they watched the film that way. But we didn't have a necessarily a prior relationship with the film festival side before that.
0: Going to your the beginning of the relationship with Sundance, I think a lot of people, I mean, there's no way for you to answer this question. So, I'm just putting you in a difficult position. I'm just recognizing (laughs) that. And it's, the question is, like, how do you get introduced into the Sundance family? I mean, it started with the writer's lab, because that's the beginning of all the programs. But, and I think you're going to say something modest and wonderful, like, I just applied. I didn't know what what happened. But you're an incredibly hard worker and incredibly talented. What did you make sure was in your application that they could see
2: how great you were? Well, you know, I... For me i think really what the main thing was was that i applied i didn't get in until i think my third application and so i had applied multiple times and that first time i applied, you know it's just a pass i think and you're like okay they're not into that and then the second time i applied it was again a pass but i had gotten maybe to the second round or something like i felt like a little bit of a little bit of maybe progression and then you know, that, that, you know, at that point, like I'm, I'm really applying for everything, you know, like I'm just like, I'm, a, I'm trying to put myself out there as much as possible. I'm applying for every lab. I'm applying for every contest, applying for everything, like just putting myself out there. And then the third time I didn't have anything new. So I, I wasn't planning to apply, but then they reached out to me and was like, Hey, Chris, like we liked your script that you applied that with last year. Do you have a new draft of that? And I, you know, that floored me first of all because it was just a straight pass. I didn't get like a note or anything. Like I I had no idea that they were at, at all intrigued with that piece. Yeah,
0: they're crafty little trackers.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's when I realized that really like it is about continuing to like engage them and apply multiple times because they're actually following their career. Like they're they're tracking you. And so when I talk to people now, I just say, just keep applying. Like they're 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 paying attention, you know, and they'll know the right moment in which they will be most helpful i think to you and your your growth as an artist and so i that third time they said please you know if you have a new draft of your script like please send it and i actually said you know i've i do i can send a new draft of that script but i have a new script and that new script was simple man i was like can i send you both and they're like yes please just send both and then they invited simple man and that's just one of those things like i wasn't up planning to apply with simple man because I'd been rejected twice. I just thought they're not into the work, like whatever, you know, but then they reached out and, you know, I I don't know, like it was kind of this beautiful thing where I was like, oh, wow. Like they were paying attention and that they they were, they were liking something about it enough to, enough to keep me on the, on the list of people that they were watching, which is a beautiful thing. And then I, of course, once I sent in Simple Man, I was like, that's, that script was a mess. I had just written it like two months before. I wrote it really quickly. I wrote it within, I think, like two three weeks, and so I I didn't expect anything. And then later on to get invited was was just like I like I don't when I got there I was like I don't know what I'm doing here <laughs> like I don't belong here like what like I'm standing in the room with like yeah I'm like I'm like hang it like Eliza Hitman is here I'm like what like why is, like why am I here with Eliza like I don't know just it was just wild I, it made no sense while I was there but you know the other thing I guess I would say is I also got better about talking about my work you know I think in the materials in which you write the personal essay kind of thing or the director's statement kind of thing, I I think I got much more concise. I, I was more clear with myself about what I was trying to do in film and what I was trying to do, where the work was coming from and where I saw myself going. Working on that side of it, working on not only, not only the actual work, but how to talk about the work and how to contextualize your own work, I think also probably helped.
1: So uh, your film... Can't hit Sundance in 2021. It's like the middle of the pandemic. You know, you released during the pandemic. Can you just talk about like what that experience was like and you know how you navigated
2: that? Yeah, it was it was totally weird. Two weeks before our Sundance premiere, my wife and I gave birth to our first daughter. And so we had a we had a newborn in our house during our Sundance premiere, which was totally insane. So on one hand, I was just grateful that I you know didn't have to trudge up to the mountains and you know i could stay home and be with the newborn and be with my wife and like that being said because of that i i didn't engage as much as i wish i could have with the virtual sundance like i tried to watch films but of course it's hard so i i didn't watch as many films as i probably wished i could have and yeah and so i it was a very weird sort of thing it felt like a festival but it also didn't feel like a festival because so much of it was just watching a baby you know, this was surprising, though, at the end of it, when it ended, I realized that it didn't give me the sense of closure that usually a film premiere can, where you feel like, okay, now it's, you know, it's out there, it's, it's out there in the world. And it just didn't, it didn't do that for me. So yeah, that surprised me that. Um, and it wasn't really until we did like our Hawaii film premiere, later on the year, which was an in person premiere, and it was a homecoming premiere that really it felt like okay now the film is done and now the film's out there in the world. Virtual premieres are weird. Like it doesn't it feels very unreal.
1: And then what happened with the distribution of the film?
2: Yes, yeah, so it was so then we had we I mean going into Sundance we have our sales, we have our PR. We ended up partnering with Strand for our distribution, Strand releasing, and that's a that's a relationship that goes back years because I had met Marcus, the president of Strand, and he had been someone that yeah, that had been, a, had been a supporter of my work previous. And so, you know, we knew, I knew that he would be like, he I know that he gets the film and that he would, you know, craft the distribution and promotional campaign that was true to the movie and that he would be very collaborative. And then on top of that, I just love Strand's, like, just library. Like, it's just, it's like so, this is so incredible. Like, just this, the history of just going back decades, like how many amazing films they've distributed. And so to be a part of that was just like a real, yeah, it's just just a real honor. And so far, it's been great working with them.
0: My last question is about how do you sustain your lifestyle being an indie filmmaker? Tell us, what are the secrets to your success financially?
2: Oh, man, it's so hard. (laughs) I try to write as much as possible. But, you know, to, to write, you need time. And so often I would write, you know, an hour in the morning or something and then go off to my day job. And my day job, I'm very lucky to say that I was working for many, many years as an editor. And so out of school, I never thought of myself editing, but I started editing my friend's short documentaries, and then I started editing the, their first feature documentaries, and then I started getting more work off of that. And it was you know, off and on, it's not necessarily continuous work, but it was enough to allow me to then edit for a bunch and then you know, shoot a short film edit for a bunch, and then take some time off to write a script, edit for a bunch. And I had a good good balance working up until that point. I'm, I mean, I'm still editing. I This just last month, I, w- I edited a feature for a friend of mine that I'm very, very stoked about. It's a Japanese, a Japanese film that we just picture locked on. So I'm still editing. But that being said, I'm hoping to do less and less of it and transition more into writing and directing full time. So, we'll see how that goes. Although, you know, I do love editing. And I do think that if the project's right, or if the filmmaker's right, I will continue to edit probably. And I'll probably continue to edit my own work moving forward. Maybe not all of it, but I do enjoy editing quite a bit. So, after
1: having like two critically and, you know, successful features, like what does your your life look like now, like getting your next feature made? Like, is it all sunshine and roses? Or is it sort of like kind of back to the to the drawing board again where you have to like, you know, repeat the process you did on the first two to to make your next one?
2: It seems like it's back to the drawing board, really. The difference is that August at a goes and then I Was a Simple Man and the Sundance premiere has definitely opened a lot more doors. I'm not as lost, I think, as I was before. Like, I think also the experience of just making those films and then taking them out into the world also, like, I, I think I understand the landscape of independent filmmaking a lot more just by doing it than I did probably five, six years ago. That definitely helps. But yeah, right now I'm I'm I have a few ideas, ideas that date back to before I was a simple man even that I'm resurrecting. And I'm still in this process of trying to figure out where which project is going to stand up and say make me. And so nothing is set yet, but I do have a few things that I'm pushing forward. And I'm also I've always been interested in the television space. So I'm also pitching in the episodic series space as well. And I have an idea there that I'm super, super excited about that's moving forward. Actually, that that like that my, my work, my, the pitches and the meetings in that space has been sort of where a lot of my attention has been these last few months. So we'll see. It's a new thing for me. And I'm still learning, but exciting to learn.
0: What's the first film you made? How do you feel about it now?
2: Oh, my God. It was the first film I made. I bought a DV camera when I was in college and I basically just shot skate videos and parties and like taught myself how to edit on Premiere Pro. And that film was just weird, uh, sort of experimental, just music editing, random footage, just playing. And the way I feel about it now is I I, I haven't watched it. <laughs> I don't even know where it is. I'm sure it's somewhere on a drive, but The way I feel about it now, actually, that's an interesting question is I only think about the feeling of making it, which was like so freeing. And actually, I would love to just hold on to that feeling of just like pure exploration. Like, like, it's just like I had a camera, I had some editing, I had some friends, and I just was like making weird stuff with no expectations and just trying stuff. And I would love to almost return to that sort of first film sort of mindset. I almost like like to think before I make a film, I almost try to like, Forget everything that I've learned um, or forget all of the cynical parts of what I've learned at least or the parts that are maybe would be obstacles to me having fun or just being free with it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I the feeling of making that film is definitely one that I cherish.
1: What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
2: Oh, um, geez, I don't know. There's so much. One that comes to mind is someone once told me that you know, there's going to be a lot of rejection in this work, but a lot of the the no's you hear are not necessarily just no, but they're just not yet or not now. And to just keep going in spite of all those no's. And I found that to be definitely the case. I mean, that Sundance Labs thing, a case in point, they said, they said no, but it really was just like not right now. And when the time is right, we'll be here. And that has turned out to be something that's happened over and over. In my life, where I experience a rejection or a no, but then that no can turn into a friendship, or it can turn into like a relationship with with the person. Or later on, they can come in and be a big supporter and at the exact right time, even though they or they said no previously. So that one, I that one is the one that comes to mind right now.
0: I would love your outlook on life; it is beautiful. <laughs> what is the worst? Bring in a little negativity. What's the worst (laughs) advice you've ever received with regard to filmmaking? There's so
2: much. (laughs) I went to film school. When I made my thesis film, I got a lot of bad advice about what film is and what filmmaking should be. And actually, when I submitted a rough cut, I think, of my thesis film to the faculty, I remember hearing, this is not a film. And it just (laughs) like crushed me because I thought it was awesome. It probably was. It probably was fantastic. I just like was like, whoa, like that is crazy. And that's that's terrible because everything's a film. Like what like what kind of advice or what kind of what kind of just read on cinema is that like, yeah, it's such a negative sort of terrible comment. And that being said, you know, like I I almost like at that point, I almost quit. Like I almost was like, it's going to be this hard to make the kind of work that I like or the kind of work that I want to make then I don't know if I have the strength to like just like keep going and like just hear this forever, you know? I did it, you know, a lot of my friends sort of were there for me at that point. Like my my friends at film school and then my collaborators, they're like, no, 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 don't don't listen to that. You know, like, like just keep doing you. And so yeah, that like anyone saying that there's only one way to make a film, or anyone saying that there's only one or something is a film and something is not a film, that's that's nonsense. Like there's you can just make a film however you want. There's no right way. There's no wrong way.
1: Do you have a goal as a filmmaker?
2: I do. And it's, it's a great question. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. My goal is to have freedom, like to have artistic freedom, which means the time and the space and the resources to make the films I want to make in the way I want to make them. It seems like something that not, nobody has really. <laughs> so it seems like a goal that seems almost impossible. Just because filmmaking is so involved and so expensive, yeah. But the, just to have freedom to like make cool stuff with my friends and have fun—that would be the goal. I still glimpse it every now and again when I make some of the work. Like I, I'm like, yeah, this is it. This is this is everything that I want out of filmmaking. The making of August Atikiko being like an example of that. Like I'm like, yeah, this is this is what I'm looking for. And if this is if I could just do this for the rest of my life, that like that would be amazing, you know.
0: If you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you'd give yourself?
2: I'd probably tell myself to just be patient and just trust, trust in yourself that even though it seems like you're making stuff and nobody's watching it and nobody's going to see it, or there just seems to be no no traction, like there will be. Just wait and just be patient and continue doing your thing and continue working hard, getting better. I, even now, I think I'm still telling myself that like, I'm trying to imagine myself 10 years from now telling myself uh, just keep just keep doing your thing like don't worry about it this is like play the long game don't don't be too reactive don't be too much trying to like let things get into your head that are so short-term sighted and just keep keep your eye on sort of the long game which is just to make great films and make films that you like and build great relationships and yeah and be a good person
1: you know Last question. Is making movies hard?
2: Yeah, fuck yeah, it's hard, man. It's the hardest. I was when we when we had our when we had our newborn, I turned to my wife Sarah. I was like, Is is, is having a, is making a film harder than this newborn? And we were both like, Yeah, making a film harder than this newborn. <laughs> I like, yeah, making making films are hard. So yeah, every you know, and but raising a newborn is also crazy hard. But yeah, making films is harder than that, I think. <laughs>
0: we'll tell the audience how they can support you and I Was a Simple Man.
2: Yeah, thank you. So we, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at I Was a Simple Man. The film is available on VOD. You can rent it on Apple TV, Amazon, all those places. And it will be streaming. Our streaming home is going to be the Criterion channel. And so they, it will be streaming on Criterion, I think, in a couple months. So you can check it out there when it's made available. And they'll put a up August at Akiko's as well. So both films will be on, which would be awesome. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a really cool conversation. I really enjoyed it.
0: Arik, what do you remember about chatting with Chris?
1: I remember like this, this feeling of like, Okay, like there's nothing like really magical or special behind the Sundance Labs. It's just like they <laughs> they find people, you know, like through their process, if you submit over and over and over and over again, you may get in not saying that's all it takes. Obviously, people do that for ever and never get in. but it's just like through Chris's like very humble, very like honest and open sort of description, it's like it's like an amazing program that like allows you to do these things, but it it doesn't really mean that you're going to make your movie. It doesn't mean that your movie is going to like have any success. It's just like gives you the tools to, to learn and grow as a filmmaker. And I feel like kind of his explanation of it and hearing about it from him kind of, I don't know, gave me more of a full picture of what it is in my mind than I had before. Before I thought it was like this elite like fancy, like amazing thing. And and maybe it is that, but I don't know. I just felt like it was also just a program that like you either can, you know, use and benefit from, or you can squander if you're not serious about your filmmaking. So I feel like, because obviously not everybody who goes to those labs comes out with movies that we've heard of, you know, and some maybe don't even make that movies. So I feel like, I don't know. It was just really interesting to hear a little bit more about that from somebody who was so Open and honest about it.
0: I don't have any takeaways about the Sundance process because I've had that context, but there's something about Chris that I think is really magnetic in that he is so humble, but he's also so calm. Like, I remember meeting him many years ago in Rotterdam at the film festival, and I just think there's this like calm confidence in him where even if I had never seen any of his work, I think I'd be down to support him just after meeting him. Like there's something about him where you're just like, oh, this guy just like seems to care about the right things in art and seems to be working very hard and seems to be very nice and a great communicator. Like I just think the basic tenets of his personality make you want to support him, which is probably like what every filmmaker needs <laughs> to traverse this industry are the personality facets that he has so i uh, just an addition i walked away with an artist crush on chris yet again confirmed my artist crush was confirmed on him and i think he's just really cool
1: yeah i will second that he is very cool <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we also have a news article to talk about this week and this is finally something i think we've mentioned on the show or at least we definitely mentioned off off the show is these nfts and, you know, how everyone's saying, NFTs, it's the thing. It's the thing that's going to change indie filmmaking. It's going to make it so you can make money on your film, blah, blah, blah. And I've always been like, I don't understand <laughs> like why or how this is possible. But I mean, this article kind of opened my eyes a little bit to it. And, you know, I feel like, yeah, it kind of brought a little bit of clarity to to my understanding of how this, this could work potentially. The article is called... MFT Film Platform Cineverse Promises to Boost Indie Film. And it's from Ed Meza from Variety. And it's basically all about this this platform Cineverse that is being created. And it's basically a film marketplace a run through NFTs like, or on. I'm not sure if it's on a single NFT or if it's like a marketplace where you buy and sell NFTs. I'm not exactly sure <laughs> which one it is. I think it's the latter or maybe it's both but basically i think the idea is that like you would be able to you know put your movie up there as an nft and then control who buys it who rents it who owns it and then how many people are able to do so and then it all kind of come all the profits come back to you and then i guess it also talks about how you can resell them but then if you resell it then a percentage of the profit goes back to the to the filmmaker which seems a little weird that if like someone buys your movie and then they resell it that they can make more profit than the filmmaker can on the resale. That seems a little odd, but anyways, I don't know. But this was an interesting article. I think I, I kind of felt like it made more sense to me now, but maybe it doesn't. I don't know. What do you What do you think, Liz? What do you think about this? Whole well, I have thing? no
0: comment on the specific platform of Cineverse. I mean, it sounds interesting, but I just wanted to talk more generally about blockchain distribution and and decentralizing distribution and banking and how I'm in favor of all of those things, but I don't. It's the issue that that every new platform and every new te- technology has is that they have to create a tipping point where the general public w- understands and comes and participates, right? So it's like without the audience, we don't really have a platform that's meaningful to filmmakers if it's just a small subset of indie filmmakers who are want to be mavericks in the way that they distribute their content and then that's very is the word parochial? It's like it's a very small subset of an audience that we want to have access to. But when I released Speed of Life, I did a deal with a blockchain distributor. And they gave me an MG and they tested out my work on the on the blockchain. And I really love the idea of the digital ledger that comes in this this world of like once someone makes a purchase, I immediately get my X percent, the platform gets its X percent, and there's like immediate disbursement of funds and that there's like digital ledgers, the digital contracts, like all of that stuff is so exciting to me. And that's why I love to see these platforms pop up. But ultimately I don't know if we're going to convince the general public to participate. And that's what I think is worth kind of chewing on is like, like how do we like, okay, so I we ran this Kickstarter at Sundance a few years ago when I was there And it was for funding efforts in self-distribution. But the problem is, is that you have to explain how difficult and insane traditional distribution is in order to convince someone to give you money for a Kickstarter campaign about self-distribution. It's like the Mm -hmm. hill is too high to climb in the very short period of time in order to put together a crowdfunding campaign. And I worry about this too, is like, How do you explain to a general public when I have trouble explaining what an NFT is and I work in distribution and to participate and put their money on a platform when they don't see like an Apple logo or an Amazon logo or all these like what they think are trusted brands. Mm -hmm. It's something new and scary. So I'm wary is what I'm saying.
1: But like, I guess what I'm thinking about is like, you know, when you would just sell your movie on your website directly to people, you know, like this seems like. Maybe you could just do it through this NFT Cineverse platform and then that way it's just a better record of all the money that comes in, you know, and a better way of doing it. But yeah, I guess that that is a question. It's like, do, like what is the barrier to entry? Like, do you have to sign up to Cineverse in order to purchase it? Like, h- how can you view it? Do you literally just download it onto your computer and watch it that way? Or do you have to watch it through Cineverse? Like, I think that was the big barrier for me in this whole NFT thing was like the idea that you had to watch it in the metaverse in order <laughs> to view the item. But I don't think that's the case. I think you just download it once you buy it and then you have it on your computer, which that makes more sense to me. But then if that's the case, like, how does that help with piracy? Because, like, people could, if they can download it to their computer, then they can upload it to wherever they want. Like, there's no control there. Well, it's got to be
0: traceable because if it's part of this digital ledger, there has to be something unique in the transaction that could tie it back to the ledger, right? Right. But I'm also not necessarily anti-piracy, which again, I know it sounds so weird, but I'm not anti-piracy because for emerging filmmakers, a lot of us prioritize eyeballs over revenue because we just really want to get our name out there as emerging filmmakers. That doesn't mean I don't believe people deserve to be paid and I don't want, you know, I'm not desperate for revenue. But I but you bring up some good concerns, like what are the practices of protecting the IP? What are the intricacies of how people do it? All of it's super interesting. But someone needs to hold our hands through this process, I think, in order to get larger numbers to to congregate to use these platforms. And it needs to be done outside of this like again, this acronym, this like talking over each other system of communication, this lexicon, because that's the problem with distribution in itself is that it's weird and alienating and shuts people out in just the way it operates and i'm worried that this like decentralized world is going to do the same thing where people are just talking about acronyms all the time and not really communicating what's happening here which is taking a power away from middlemen which is fantastic like that should be the right headline
1: but what's stopping Sony or someone else, whatever Netflix, from like you know buying your NFT film and then reselling it however they want, and then only giving you a percentage of the resales? Like, oh my God, I don't even like know what, how
0: to compute all of that.
1: that. That's what I'm. I'm like, okay, so, but because is it is it because it's only one, and then you resell it, then it's just that one that's been resold, and then if you're selling it yourself, like you can sell as many copies as you want, is my understanding. Of an NFT, but you control that amount. So there's only can be so many of the movie. So you can say, "Oh, I'm gonna only." There's only two thousand digital copies of the alternate. Like buy them while they last, you know. And then if when you're done watching it, then you can sell it to somebody else. But I feel like that whole thing of downloading it into your own computer to watch it, then that can't be possible. Then because otherwise you could just copy it easily. If you download, if you can download it, you can copy it. Yeah. So I think however you're watching it is probably within the Cineverse platform, and then getting someone to watch movies on your terms and not on their own terms, like through their own systems or like their laptop, their phone, their home entertainment system, like that is a huge, huge barrier, you know, like even just going to these virtual film festivals, it's like, if you can't get it up on your own screen and where you watch it, like you're you're not really going to watch it, you know, unless you're a special, you know, unless you're an individual who, watches movies on their computer normally and that's how you watch them and so then it's no different but yeah i just think there's just so many different issues and concerns around this that it's like i feel like maybe someday it'll be some someplace or something but like right now it just seems like it's so early yeah and i don't necessarily know if it's like like how is this gonna really help indie new filmmakers like that's that's what i want the answer to that's why we need to have someone like jason charnick on the show to talk about like why are they so NFT crazy? Like what filmmaker Jason
0: Chernick who loves NFTs and listens to the podcast.
1: Yeah. Tell us, Jason. I want to know, damn it.
0: <laughs> but I do believe, just to because I hope I want to be clear that these things are good for indie film. I do want us to steer in this direction away from these platforms. I mean, you think about the Amazon Film Festival stars program, I'll just a refresher a few years ago. They said, if you get into X Festival, you get an X license fee. You know, it was this automatic thing where it wasn't curated. It was a little bit more democratic. And it was very Mm. interesting. You know, they shook the industry up and then they withdrew and with they retracted that program. And then they started taking content off of their platform. So I'm just saying, like, the reason this is so good for indie film is because we don't have to be reliant on the the whims of these massive corporate overlords who get to do whatever they want with our films.
2: You right. know, That
0: is what's really upsetting. And so, I just want us to do a better job of educating each other on what exactly this opportunity is. But yeah, maybe we should have Jason on. Jason, are you interested?
1: Yeah. 15-minute segment. We'll talk about NFTs. Let's do 15, it. 15.
0: 15. No more, please. Yeah. No,
1: not, not 16. 15.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we also have a new iTunes review to read. So... Let's share it with everyone. Mom of the Boys, yet another username that I enjoy. Mom of the Boys said, such a fun and informative podcast, five stars. And the bulk of the review said, I just found this podcast and now I'm going to binge the whole thing. Well, Mom of the Boys, don't forget to be a Patreon patron because you're going to miss like 100 episodes that are not accessible to you unless you're one of our patrons. But thank you for listening to the show and for saying such kind things.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mom for the, of the Boys. And it'll soon be like 300 episodes that you won't be able to listen to. So, all y'all out there who are listening to the back Catalog, those days are numbered. Unless you're a Patreon patron. So, I don't know. Enjoy the show while you can, I should say. Or just become a patron and you can enjoy, enjoy it forever. Also, you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes like Mom of the Boys did. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast, where the show still lives, even though it's just in audio video form, not in true video form. Also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. It's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your log line to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers lists featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Chris Yogi for coming on the show and to our amazing producer, Eric Toms, for being amazing. And thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrimut, for doing the editing as always. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. So, yeah. I think we're done, right, Liz? Nothing else to say? <laughs> we're done. Yes, we're done. All right, Jeff, you can cut that out.